Uh, we are in Hebrews, specifically chapter 4 today, at uh, the end of chapter 4. And as we start, um, we have to approach a really big question on how do we approach God. And early on in the ministry of John Piper, those of you know who uh, Pastor John Piper is, the very first week he was at his brand new church right out of seminary, he changed the entire structure of the service. Now, people gave him a little bit of leeway going, oh, he's a new guy, you know, you know, just give him an opportunity, brand new first week. But he changed everything, the entire order and structure of the service. Still started at the same time, but it was completely different. And people gave him a pass. Everybody came back the second week, and the service was, again, completely different. The structure and organization of it was almost opposite of what it was the week before. And for the next 50 weeks, every single Sunday was different. They would have a song and then the preaching, and then more songs, and then the offering. They'd have the offering at the beginning, the preaching at the beginning, the offering at the end. And every week for 52 weeks, the service was changed and it was different. Now, you can think to yourself, oh, I'm thankful that Tim doesn't do that every week because I like consistency. I like to know when everything is happening, when I actually have to show up, and I love structure and organization. But his point in that was is to get people out of the mindset that the way you approach God in a worship service isn't the end-all and be-all and the only way it can be done. This past week, uh, I saw a news article out of China that there was born this cow. Now, nothing unusual about cows being born, but this cow was unusual. It had two heads. Wow, weird. Definitely not normal. It's you know, definitely not something that you'd be super proud of. But what was sad about that article is that everyone in that town began to worship it and to bring it offerings and food and, and pray to it. I'm like, it's, it's a two-headed cow. It's a mutant. It's not normal. It's not God. It's not how you draw near to God. But that concept of drawing near to God, of getting right with him, of approaching him, can be incredibly daunting and hard to figure out because so many people do it differently. What do I really need to do and believe in order to approach God? How do I actually approach him? Is it when my eyes are closed and my hands are folded? Can I be standing? Can my arm be raised? Do I have to be kneeling? Do I have to be sitting? Do I have to do it at 10.30 to 11.30? Do I have to have songs first, then preaching? Do I have to have an offering? Do I have to have communion? Do I pray to a two-headed cow? How do we approach God? And just because a worship service is similar from week to week. It is not the worship service or its familiarity that brings you close to God. It is not the songs we sing that brings you face to face with God. It's not prayer that brings you face to face with God. What brings you face to face with God? And I should have phrased that differently. Who brings you face to face with God? Jesus Christ and him alone. 
Because Jesus himself was asked several occasions, one recorded, how do we approach God? How do we worship him? Do we worship him on this mountain or that mountain? What are the steps that I need to take in order to be close to God, right with him? Jesus says, the place doesn't matter. The structure doesn't matter. What happens first, what happens second, doesn't matter. What matters is your heart and truth. Spirit and truth brings you to that point where you willingly submit that Jesus Christ is your only way, your only hope, your only audience into a relationship with God. Only he ushers in a path of consistency to God. Nature can't, as beautiful as it is, nature can't do that. As much as we like consistency, consistency can't bring you closer to God. It's only Jesus Christ. And we see that exemplified and established and beautified in the verses that we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. These are wonderful verses, and in fact, the author of Hebrews starts in this section, in verse 14 of chapter 4, and takes this theme all the way to chapter 10. All the way to chapter 10, we're going to have six chapters talking about the greatness of how Jesus Christ brings us face-to-face with God, and that he and he alone is our path, our door, our way into a relationship with God. Only him. And the author does it in so many magnificent, marvelous ways. It's going to be new and different and refreshing and comforting every single week until we get to chapter 11. And then it's still going to be comforting and exciting and good after chapter 11. I mean, don't don't stop coming after chapter 10. I mean, there's still stuff happening for uh, 11, 12, and 13. But he now focuses on the great relationship that we have through Jesus Christ and the Father, and he sets six chapters aside to tell us that. Why do you think he's going to take six chapters to tell us this? Because he knows, God, inspiring God's word, knows that we will struggle on how to approach God. We will think it might be through a cow, a two-headed cow. We might think it's through worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountain and nature. We might think... It's going through the rituals of this, 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 this. And God knows we need to be reminded constantly. It's not through those things. It's through Jesus Christ and him alone. So let's start in verse 14 and read that. It says, since then we have a high priest, a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If you remember, the previous two chapters all dealt with the Israelites giving up their confession, confused in their confession, denying their confession, rejecting it, and getting into massive trouble because of it. In fact, 40 years of judgment and punishment, some of them never even entered into the promised land of rest of Israel. But... We are reminded that because we have a great high priest, in our modern day and age, especially in Protestant, non-Catholic churches, this idea of priest really can be confusing and automatically my hand goes up and says, I don't want to deal with priests. They're in the news and I know what they do. We're not talking about a human. 
We're talking about the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the role he fulfilled as high priest, great high priest. That is that person that went before God the Father in the temple and the tabernacle before that and presented the sacrifice not only for their sins but for the sins of the entire nation. And the reason why he is the great high priest is because Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin. And we're going to see that time and time again in these later chapters. He did not have to make himself right before he went to God. Every high priest had to. Every high priest had to make themselves pure before God because of their own sin. But Jesus didn't have to. He could walk right into the Holy of Holies because that was his home. That's where he came from, heaven itself, the throne room of God. When he became incarnate, Jesus Christ, that little baby, he came from the throne of heaven itself, the Holy of Holies, leaving it and forsaking it so that he might take on human flesh and feel everything we feel and suffer everything we suffer so that he might make a right and good atonement, satisfaction of God's justice and wrath for our sins. And we're told in this verse that he passed through the heavens. That is, I think, the author's way of saying he did what was before him. He, he had no boundaries, no limitations. He went straight through the heavens, straight to God and said, here it is. I'm approaching to you, I'm approaching you as the God-man Jesus Christ. I've never sinned, but I bore the sins of the world on behalf of the people you gave me, and I am making it right. Take my blood, my sacrifice, my death as theirs, and give them my holiness, my righteousness, my beauty, my perfection. Give it to them, robe them in it, change their heart. Transform them and then bring them to me at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let them feast on the bounty of the blessing of grace and mercy and justice served. Passed straight through the heavens. And just to make sure that we are clear on who this great high priest is, we're defined again, Jesus, the Son of God. This unique individual, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, that person and God, Jesus Christ, let us approach through him. And there's a call to action to let us hold fast our, our confession. We see this a number of times. Stay steady, stay steadfast, be immovable. Go straight ahead. Do not stop. Do not give in. There's always that confident, that confident pursuit that God gives us of holiness. Always pursuing holiness. Not to be saved, but as a reflection that we are indeed saved. That we are indeed living up to the word that we're confessing. Lay hold that confession. Because what we follow and what we confess is that Jesus Christ is the great high priest, that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man, that he is who he says he is, and he accomplished what he said he does. That is our confession. We confess that Jesus Christ and him alone gives us access to the Father, that we only can be forgiven of our sins through his sacrifice. And that we rejoice 
that death had no power over him, that death could not hold him, that death could not master him, but that he rose again on the third day with all the power and glory that was his already before, and that he will one day again return to make all things right because they are not right right now. But he will bring rightness to all of God's creation, remaking it all over again, perfect, without the possibility of sin entering into it again. That is our confession. Our confession is that we do not stand with our own power before God. Our confession is that we can't make it right with God. Our confession is, I'm not better than you. Our confession is that we are humble before God. Our confession is that I need to love before I hate. My confession is that I have to rid myself of anger and replace it with love. My confession is I have to replace the lies with truth, laziness with work. I have to replace a world revolving around me and what I want and what I need and what I, 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 and replace it with you. I have to replace the gods of this world with the one true God. I have to replace all the two-headed cows with the beautiful Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. I have to replace even the beauty of the heavens itself, the stars and the beautiful skies and mountains and snow caps on those mountains. I have to replace all of those things as priorities and leave God as my sole priority of joy and everlasting happiness. That is our confession. Our confession is that there is one God, not many gods, and not no God, but that there is one true God. Our confession is that his word leads and guides us. It's not our opinion that does it. It's not tradition that does it, but it's his word that does it. That is our confession. Our confession is that there are two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, not seven. I don't know why I just held up one hand. Not seven and not none. Our confession is that there are not multiple ways to approach God. There is one. Doesn't matter how beneficial you are to a life in this world, that does not get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confessing it, believing it, having faith. Our confession is that we don't fight this world physically, but we fight spiritually, knowing that the spiritual battle ahead of us that we're going through and will go through, we need to depend on God for that. We can't depend on our wits or our own power. Our confession is that money will not rule us. Money will not drive us. Fame, money, beauty, fortune will not be our God. 
There's one God, not many. And I could go on and on and on about what our confession is. And if you leave with one thing in your mind about our confession, it is Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And we have to hold on to that. We have to be diligent to review it, to think about it, to search it, to read about it, to pray about it, to approach him. We have to be diligent because we are going to be bombarded with compromise. We're going to be bombarded with, that's your truth, this is my truth. We're going to be bombarded with so many different idle options that it's going to be hard to distinguish what's true and what's false. We're going to get bombarded with blatant lies from the devil. We will. He will lie through media. He'll lie through our own conscience. He'll lie through our own thoughts. He will lie through people close to us. You have to hold fast this confession. You have to hold on to it with all your might and strength and every reserved bit of power and effort you have. I will not compromise. And you will grow tired of that stance. But you don't stand alone. Jesus stands in front of you, behind you, and to each side. You stand with him. I've said it many times, and I will say it many more times. When you stand with God, you stand in the majority, even if the world is against you. When you stand with him, you are safe, you are protected, you have peace, you have joy, you have hope. In verse 15, we're introduced to this topic. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, who is, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let's talk politics for a while. Or why not, right? The uh, Bible has a lot to say about politics, by the way. You know what frustrates me about politicians? And it, I don't care what party they're part of. You know what really frustrates me? Is the higher up you get into politics, I think the less and less they actually go to grocery stores and buy groceries for themselves. I think they have people do it for them. I think they have people drive them around so they don't understand traffic. I think they have this mentality, traffic needs to stop for me because I am, and then you fill in the blank. Well, properly fill in the blank with the title of their office. They are out of touch. And I know it's not just politicians. I know you could probably say, oh, the CEO of my company is out of touch. My manager, manager's out of touch. My parent is out of touch. 
My kids are out of touch. I mean, everybody seems, that's a blanket excuse that we say to people, oh, you're just out of touch. You don't know what it's like to be me. And you know what, I, I probably don't know what it's like to be you. But I do know that you don't know what it's like to be me. But somehow those politicians have this double way of speaking of, hey, I'm just like you. I, I worked uh, a paper job once uh, 60 years ago, so I'm just like you. Really, delivering papers when you were 12 years old and now you're 70 doesn't make you like me at all if you've never had a real job. Doesn't. And so we can look at people in authority and being not in that authority, we can look at them and go, you are so out of touch with us. You've got no clue what the common person has to struggle with, how to stop at a red light. You get to go through every red light. In fact, you don't even have to use public transportation. We give you free transportation. You don't know what it's like to wonder if someone's going to break into my house. Because your house is totally protected by guards and fences. You have no idea what it's like to wonder, can I get chicken at the store this week? Because you get whatever you want served to you with my money. Jesus is not like a politician. Let's get that out of the way straight. But he is unbelievably number one and superior in all things. He has the number one position in all of creation. There's not a king or president or councilman or governor or whatever that's ever come close to his power and authority and ability to relate to us. He is sympathetic because he knows exactly what we're going through because he did indeed walk in our dirt. He was not carried along in a chariot or a limousine or a private jet. He walked the same dusty path every fisherman and carpenter and person in Israel. He faced sorrow because of death and hunger. He faced people hating him because of who he stood for, God. He knows what it was like not to know where he was going to sleep that night. Could be on a boat, could be on another village. He has nowhere to call home. He knows those pains. He knows those sufferings. He knows exactly what temptation feels like. You know, there's, a, there's an episode in Luke chapter 23. And in Luke chapter 23, this is his trial and his crucifixion, his time on the cross. And in verse 34, or 35 of Luke 23, it says this. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. Now, he's on the cross at this point, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You remember that in that crucifixion week, that moment he's on the cross? They hurled insults at him and said, if you're so powerful, take yourself down. Do you know what's happening at that moment? Jesus is being tempted. He's actually being tempted to reject God's plan and accept a different plan, an easier plan. He's being faced with the trial and temptation of giving up on God and making life a little bit easier. See, if he had come down off that cross, 
He wouldn't have had to endure the death of the cross. That was his pain in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this from me. What I'm about to face is world-changing. And I don't say that lightly. World-changing. The sins of the world are going to be on my shoulder. I'm going to feel the weight of it, the sorrow of it, the guilt of it, the hugeness of it. You know what it feels like to feel guilt, right? You know what guilt feels like? Knowing what is right but doing the opposite and being caught in that and feeling it? You know how it wrenches your gut, how you can't even swallow, how it doesn't come off of your mind? how you want relief. Jesus felt that for every one of his children, the fullness of it at one moment. And he was asked, why don't you just give it up, come down and save yourself? Give up on God's service. Give up on his plan. Give up on his way of doing things and adopt the easy way out. You see, even when he was dying and shedding his blood and bleeding on that cross, he was tempted to give up on God's way, to compromise on it. But you know what? He held fast, didn't he? He held on to God's truth and knew that there was no other way to save his people but to give up his own life. He couldn't take the easy way when the devil came and tempted him, and he could not take the easy way when life was about to be drained from his body and he could have saved himself pain. He said, no, I'm going to hold fast to what God has given me and endure the pain and suffering and sorrows. So God even knows in Christ what it feels like to not want to follow God. He knows what it feels like. He was faced with that temptation, but praise be to him that he did not succumb to it, that he did not give in. Not even an inch did he give in, but he held fast, confirmed to what God the Father had planned. The Son said, I will do it even though it will cost me my life. Jesus knows exactly what temptation feels like and to win. He knows exactly what it feels like to lose a loved one. He knows exactly what it feels like to get bad news. He knows exactly what it feels like to be the kid who doesn't get invited to the popular table. He knows exactly what it's like to lose all of his friends on social media and have no one liking his stuff. He knows what that feels like. And he embraced it willingly, and I know he would do it again because he's God and he will not compromise. So we can relate to him. In Psalm 103, verse 14, it says, our sufferings and challenges are not unknown to him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now how about that for a t-shirt slogan? I'm dust! No, what do I want? I'm a winner. I'm number one. Just do it. Go for it. But God's way of applying his relatability to us is coming and living among us. Tabernacling, which means living among us and enduring what we endure, the frailties of human life to the point 
of his own death. He knows that we're not as strong as we pretend. He knows that we are not as great as we pretend, wise as we pretend, as knowledgeable as we pretend, as important as we pretend. He knows that we will not live forever in this human flesh. He knows we'll die. He'll know we'll get sick. He knows the pains and sorrows of that. He lived it. He knows how weak, as amazing as our human body is, he knows how weak it is because of sin and how it will grow old and decay. He knows what it's like to have a bum knee, a hurting toe, a headache, a stomachache. He knows that. He can relate to it. He was fully human, yet he was fully divine as our great high priest. I'm thankful that he remembers that we're not supermen and superwomen. I'm glad he knows we're not superheroes with super strength. I'm glad he knows that we need rest, that we need food, that we need sleep. I'm glad that he knows that. I'm glad he knows what death feels like. I'm glad he knows that. Because he's able to guide us through that. He's able to be there present with us when we die. I'm glad he knows that. I'm glad he knows us in and out. I'm glad he knows our frailties. I'm glad he knows that we'll turn to dust. And I'm glad to know that that's not the end of the story. That his work as the great high priest takes into account all those weaknesses and frailties and says, I'm going to make them new. My children I am going to fashion into vessels of honor, and they are going to be in my kingdom forever and ever and ever. That is his promise to you as one of you. He promises to you that he will bring every one of his children into that perfect, full relationship with the Father. No sin, no weakness, no falling into dust will prevent him for that, prevent him to doing that. And that leads the author of Hebrews to verse 16, which is just mind-boggling. In light of all this, what should we do? Asking the question, how shall we then live? In light of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being our great high priest, in light of the fact that he knows exactly what we're going through, he knows our frailties, he knows what it's like to be human in every aspect, what should we do? Just go, oh, good, good message, Tim, good songs, nice to meet Chance and Mariah, that's awesome, thanks, see you next week. Is it just, just like another moment of our life? Not if we're going to hold fast our confession. It can't be just like every other moment of our life. We live it and it's a memory. We have to live it and make it our present. And so the author of Hebrews says, let us then, that idea of therefore, a concluding statement, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's start at the end and work towards the beginning of that verse. Do you have a need? Are we in need? Oh, I know. We can get prayer cards of needs like 
bushels of them, and we're only starting with a small amount. I mean, yes, we have needs, and we're not even going to list all the needs because you know what you need. I know what I need. Yes, Lord, I need. How do I get those needs satisfied? How do I get those needs solved, filled? According to the verse, there's only one way. The Father. The Father of heaven and earth. The Father who created all things. The Father who sustains all things. The Father who says there's not an inch of this universe where I do not say, mine! And he holds it in the palm of his hand, but yet his hand is larger than that. Go to him. How do I go to him? He's really big. Do I use a two-headed cow to get to him? Do I use traditions to get to him? Do I use priests to get to him? Do I use rituals to get to him? Do I get consistency to get to him? Do I have to close my eyes to get to him? Do I have to sing the songs I like or the songs they like? How do I get to him? Through the Son. God has taken every human option out of the way and replaced it with his option. Come to me. But God, you are so different than me. You are eternal. Let's just, you're eternal. And we can stop there. You are so big. You feel so distant and so unapproachable. How do I get there? We got to come with confidence. How can I come with confidence? I feel so little compared to you. So distant compared to you. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace. The throne of grace that was made possible by our great high priest who's already gone through this, surpassed what heaven needed and wanted and gives it to us. Oh, I want mercy. I want to find grace in times of need. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Where else can we find grace and mercy but from the hand of God? Where else can we find acceptance and change but from the hand of God? His throne room is indeed the place to be. He is the one who Paul says, almost lifting up his hands in frustration trying to find the words, he is my all in all. I got nothing but him, and I have everything through him. He is my all in all. See, you can draw confidently before th the throne of grace. You can do it in prayer, in meditation, in song, in living your life as God intended. You can draw near to him. And the promises as we draw near to him, those needs that we felt were overwhelmingly taking up our precious time and money and relationships and resources, they no longer become the focus of our heart and our worry. What worry is there before the throne of God, a throne of mercy and grace? What pain is there in front of the throne of grace? I'm not talking about ignoring reality, but I'm saying that reality does not have to have an effect on how I think, live, and believe. He rules how I think, live, and believe as my great high priest. And he offers that relationship to everyone who calls upon his name.
He will not reject anyone who confesses the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. My final question would be, what is holding you back from crying out to him? What is holding you back, even as a believer, from confidently going into the throne room of grace and saying, help? What is stopping you? I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask you to think of that one thing that just comes to your mind, because I know God will bring it to your mind. And as the band comes up, I'm going to pray and ask that God would relieve us of that one thing that is stopping us from going confidently. Our gracious Father, before your throne of grace and mercy we come, pleading and acknowledging our need for you. Father, remove from us the pride and arrogance of life that so often gets in the way of our relationships with each other, but also in our relationship with you. Help us, Father, to be joyfully expecting that throne room of grace when we come before you through Jesus Christ, in whose name all of God's people say, Amen.
for the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And hallelujah. May the greatness of our great high priest be with you now and forevermore. Go in peace. Everyone have a great week. I'm going to ask Chance and Mariah to go out first while we're still talking. That's your cue. They can't go until you get out there. Say hello to them. Pick up one of those prayer sheets. And uh, see you later, everyone. Bye. Bye.